0: Welcome to Six Degrees Within YGK, a podcast where we get everyone within the YGK area where we talk about health, fitness, and overall balance of life. I'm your host, Bob Payne, owner of Crossroad Limestone, Limestone Athletics. Rob, thank you so much for jumping on, man. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. So you're down in the Bahamas right now,
1: right? Yes. yes. Okay.
0: So, like, what got you down there? Because, because it's with rowing too. You're coaching rowing down there.
1: Yeah. So I I accepted a position um, recently to be a physical education teacher down here at a private boarding school, but with the main purpose being to be the director of a rowing program. With the intent on securing U.S. scholarships for uh, Bahamian athletes to uh, U.S. colleges. Okay, that's a pretty nice gig to be down there, right? Eh? Yeah, no, it's been it's been a wonderful experience so far. I've been here for about four weeks now. Uh, I hadn't, I wasn't able to come down and visit prior, just due to COVID complications, you know, et cetera. But everyone's been so welcoming. It's a school of about 250 students. Um, it's in a private 600 acre gated community called Albany. Um, it's really, it's it's a wonderful place. It's, uh, it's been around for 10 years. The school's been here for, this is its fifth year. Uh, it's a pretty special place, which I'm, um, which I didn't really, like I, like I said, I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I had accepted this position. It was a bit of a roll of the dice, but it's been a good move so far in many ways. It's, it's been a dream job and I'm feeling quite lucky to be here.
0: Oh, that's wicked. it. Well, let's, jump back a bit let's get let's kind of explain a little bit about your background here because with you being from Kingston like our podcast is called Six Degrees with YGK because everyone kind of knows each other we're all connected I know because you and I we first officially met there was over at the Steve Carter um tribute workout and yes. like I, I knew your dad when he was running the restaurant you know my brother P because you're going to see him for some adjustments Right. And, that. and like Kingston is just such a small town, everyone knows each other, but you're, <laughs> but you're local, like, I would like to say, like, you're well known in Kingston, right? So kind of, what's kind of, let's jump into your background here, because like what high school you went to and.
1: Yeah, no, of course. Okay. So I went to uh, Regie. Um, you know, even, sorry, prior to that, this backtrack even further growing up, I was, you know, mainly a hockey player, bit of soccer here, bit of baseball there as a kid. I uh, got into basketball at Regi, which introduced me to uh, some wonderful friends that um, I'm still in touch with to this day, some of my best friends. Um, but then I got into rowing towards the end of high school. I started in grade 10. I did it for about three weeks. My good buddy, John Paul Morgan Stern, he's a teacher at Regi now. He was the one that got me into it. He asked me to try out for the rowing team that he was kind of getting started at Regi. there. I didn't know what rowing was at the time. I did it anyways. He's one of my good buddies and none of us had tried it before. We had an eight man boat that, that spring we might've rode for like three or four weeks. I didn't think much of it until 12 months later when we did it again. And that was the time around like when the Kingston rowing club coach, John Armitage kind of approached me and he's a bit of a legend there. I mean, he's been volunteering for like 50 years. I mean, he's, he's influenced so many people in a positive light.
0: No, he's a great guy. Cause he brings in the rowing club into the gym there. So I've known him right before COVID. So that's when he first started, but yeah, we always keep in contact. He's a great guy. So.
1: Yeah. I mean, he really, he changed my life for the better. And he, he gave me the confidence to pursue rowing and solely rowing. So, uh, I ended up transferring high schools from region to KC, my last semester of high school in grade 12, because John was the head coach at Casey KC and KCBI had a much stronger rowing history. Um, and they had a crop of pretty solid rowers at the time. So I transferred over there January or February, whatever, whatever it was in 2004 and things really took off that winter. I trained, you know, I trained my ass off. I was getting, well, that whole fall, winter, spring, I was getting up at like 445, down to the rowing club for 515 practice started at 530 in the winter. We'd be on the rowing machines for an hour um, in the, I guess in the early fall and then there, late spring summer we'd be on the water um, but that's just what I did then I'd also do some training after school as well uh, and then things really really jumped I became the national indoor rowing champion and then I linked up with my uh, like almost like a you know like long teammate Will Crothers and we went undefeated in in the pair the rowing event the pair won the Canadian championships Then the two of us made the junior national team. We went over to Spain and got a bronze medal at Junior Worlds. And then I also secured a scholarship myself for uh, the University of Washington in Seattle. So the whole process, it was like a 13, 14-month, like, (laughs) almost like a tornado of events taking place. But it was all, it just kept building on each other. And uh, it led me to the Canadian national team. So
0: At what point did you, like, okay i'm I got some some talent here or like when was the moment that you kind of like realized like okay like I can do something with this
1: Probably I mean it, it was like I want to say it was like a 10 day period. Uh, I made the junior the junior national team for Canada and then I also became the national high school champion like it, it was like a seven or nine day some some range there. So two huge milestones all in a very short period. And then that's when I started realizing that I could uh, that I could have a future in this. And the Olympic flame started flickering a little brighter at that point.
0: Because uh, uh, yeah, you were because you went to three Olympics, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I was in Beijing, London, and Rio. They were three very different Olympic experiences, about as different as you could possibly get. I mean, in Beijing, I was the young guy on the squad. I did not race. I was the alternate for the men's eight. Now that crew of those eight guys, they were a um, a veteran core guys that had a disappointing Athens experience four years prior. So they came back older, wiser, faster. And I got to be the witness to them, you know, <laughs> just taking nothing, but like they were, they were so hell bent on the gold medal and I got to witness all of that. And, in some sports, you get a gold medal for being the alternate or the spare, like, you know, the men's, like, ice hockey in the winter, like, the backup goalies will get a gold medal, for example, or whatever medal. Yeah. Uh, rowing, that's not the case, and that's that's fine. That's just the way it is. So, anyways, Beijing was a good eye-opening experience for me. And, uh, you know, flash forward four years later, London, we go in as the reigning world record holders. We are we're the bronze medalists at the world championships the year prior. And we this is a- the late, man, right? Yes, yes. This is back when Canada was still producing uh, eight-man boats, and to a very high degree, too, they had a strong reputation. Uh, so we were we were pretty fast. We knew we were fast, and then we had a horrendous first race in the heat in London, like just dead last by a mile. It was just a complete blow-up. Uh, we... We were able to compose ourselves in the next race in the Rappage to, to uh, qualify for the final. Then we had the race of our lives to secure the silver medal. The Germans ended up winning the gold that day. They went undefeated for four years. That was the first time uh a men's had ever gone four years undefeated. And those guys were literally the cream of the crop. They were a great group of guys. And we ended up partying with them afterwards for quite a bit. They're just really fantastic guys. They're very complimentary on, on our silver medal success and then again in rio um we were late to qualify so we failed to qualify the summer prior at the world championship so we had to do this thing called the regatta of death Mm -hmm. it's the last chance qualifier basically you have to be first or second in your given event to qualify for the olympics in it's like the month of june so it's just prior to the olympics and in many ways the stress and the pressure is much higher at that regatta than than the Olympics itself, because I mean, you can train for four years and get to that, that last chance regatta. And then should you fail, you don't even get to go to the Olympics, let alone compete for a medal. So the stakes are very high. Uh, we ended up qualifying however, and then in Rio disaster struck our crew. And it struck my, or to be specific, my, my starboard oar. um, caught a crab. That's what we call it in the sports. It's basically when your, oar, your blade dives down into the water and, uh, it's 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 essentially like throwing an anchor out over a boat. Like you're you're done. Like there's no chance you're gonna catch up. And then we weren't able to recover and get ourselves into the final. So our Olympics was um, essentially over. We ended up racing a B. It's a B final, but it's it's not very fun to race a B final at the Olympics. If you could, if you could imagine.
0: Well, no, it would be like playing for. I guess like in the World Hockey Championships, it would be playing for like fifth place,
1: right? Exactly. It's no one. It's really, really mentally challenging to get up for it and go through the motions to uh prepare yourself to race and uh you know we did our best as everyone all the other crews did as well but uh you know as i as i said it it was three very different olympic um, team canada experiences
0: now that's crazy because it is now let's go back to the 08 which was the first one now you were able to train with all those guys the whole time right yes yeah. Now, cause you sent me that video of you guys in the life there, or was that after, cause you sent me that long video.
1: Yeah. So that long video, that was, that was basically our training lifestyle from
0: 2013 to 2016. Okay. Okay. Well then, yeah. the, okay. I mixed that up. But so you sent me some of your workouts. So back then from 2004 to 2012, you wrote out that you were doing 18 workouts a week, six days
1: a week. Yes.
0: Yeah. And like, it was more intense there. And like, and then you flipped over from 2012 to 2016 to where you can start doing more volume. Like basically your whole life is just wake up and you train.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was. And looking back on it now, I don't know how I did it, how we did it. It just kind of, we really, we, we normalized it. It's just, that was the only option. That's all we knew. Um, You know, the, the first summer I started training, full-time with the senior national team was uh, I was 19 years old and it was the worst summer of my life. I had a rec- shock to your body. Like, Oh, I was ill prepared. I wasn't yet physically or even mentally prepared to go into that almost like war zone. Uh, I was, you know, it's, it's three competitive workouts every day in a, a power endurance sport. I mean, it, it, it hurts. Like it, you're, you're always tired. You're always hungry. Your hands are always covered in blisters. Um, you just, you see, you feel like you could sleep for like, like five days straight and you still wouldn't have enough rest, but that's just your body breaking itself down. And if you can, if you can find the will to keep going, your body will adapt. It will, it will find a way to build yourself stronger, build, build up your muscles, your skeletal system, your nervous system, your mental system, everything. I mean, if you can just find a way to just overcome those really dark days, you will be rewarded for it in the long run. At least that's, that's my experience. That was my experience.
0: Now, I guess at that time, cause you would have had all those veterans in there. So you're kind of just trying to play, keep up with them too. right? Yeah.
1: I mean, I, I, in high school, I'd watch these guys win world championship gold medals. I'd watch them race at the Olympics. And then very quickly I'm, I'm, tra- I'm their training partner. And, uh, I'm getting beat up like every day, like I'm getting smoked. Like I am dead last, like every single training session. Sometimes it's not even close. Sometimes it's like, they would start the next training. We call them training runs. It's about a two and a half kilometers to spin two and a half kilometers. They would start and I will, I'd still be trying to catch up to them on the first one. So I was, I was out of my league, but I think the coaches saw that I had some potential. So they really, they really pushed me that summer. And, uh, I made it. I made a big jump um, in my physiology that that summer. I really uh, went leaps and bounds. And I went back to the University of Washington for my second year, my, my sophomore year, and I was able to elevate my game and make the make the make the varsity boat that year and kind of take a leadership role in the team as a as a younger student athlete at the time.
0: Now, during that time, like in that beginning phase of like going from like say amateur to like hitting that elite status, was there a lot of times where you just want to quit or was this oh. like, okay, yeah, I'm going for a greater thing here? Like what was oh. the whole mind frame? Yeah, yeah, no,
1: I mean, I, <laughs> it, it sounds kind of bizarre to say it right now, but I, I I wanted to quit more than I wanted to have success sometimes. I mean, I, I'm laughing about it now, but I just think of all the mornings my alarm would go off. It was more of a sociable hour as you, when you, when it becomes your, your job we would meet at 7 30 most mornings so it's a bit more sociable opposed to the high school university you know 5 30 a.m days but you know your alarm's still going off at 6 6 30 a.m whatever it may be and I just remember especially I remember a chunk of time and I think it was the winter of 2014 there was like three or four months in a row in the winter when it's pouring rain in Victoria BC and we're just in a training cycle that's just heavy volume and you just, you just can't get enough rest. You can't get enough calories. You're always tired and hungry. I'm just, what am I doing this for? <laughs> I really, <laughs> there were some dark days there for a while, but. Well,
0: especially luckily. at that age, because you got a lot of buddies say from high school and stuff, they're all hanging out at the park yeah. and stuff like that. You can't go do that. Cause like, if you go have a couple pints there, you have a night, like you're getting up, you're grinding right back. Yeah.
1: No, there really wasn't any, pint nights. I mean, maybe the odd beer on a Saturday night, if we had the next day off. Um, I think I, I think I added up, it was like 28 weddings I missed over the course of my, um, you know, rowing career, which was about two or three a summer on average. Yeah. And yeah, you know, my buddies, they're moving on with their lives. They're getting their career started. They're getting families started. Um, they're making money, you know, that's another big thing growing, you know, no one, no one is going and getting into rowing for fame or fortune. Just, it's just not one of those sports. So, you know, you're in your early twenties. That's one thing to be living in a house in a basement with like three or four other guys. But then when you're in your later twenties, it starts to get real and uh, it doesn't become as fun anymore. Um, so you got to find ways around that. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I'm, 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 glad I, I'm glad I was able to stick with it and see through till, um, till the Rio Olympics, but it, uh, it was definitely, I found it more of a challenge the older I got to, to stick with the team.
0: Now is that more from a mental side or just from your body t- just taking the
1: abuse? A bit of both, I guess. Uh, I, I suffered, I had, a, had some bad back problems. Um, especially as I, as my career continued, I think it stemmed from poor rowing technique in my younger years and, just not taking care of my body, not, not understanding what I was doing to my body at the time, as I was, as I was training. Um, luckily the coaches leading in Rio, they, they acknowledged this and they allowed me to adapt my training. I did a lot more cycling opposed to, um, spending time on the rowing machine, which, which allowed me to continue my training on the water, uh, which is ultimately the, the most important aspect of, of what we do. Uh, we do a lot of dry land training. We did a lot of dry land training, I should say. Um, like a lot of days in the gym, a lot of, a lot of weights and um, a lot of time spent on the rowing machine. Like um, every Friday afternoon for our, it was our fourth workout of the day. Fridays were our heavy days. We would do five by six kilometers with three minutes rest in between. And we were instructed to be at a certain lactate level. So in between each six kilometer training piece, you know, we get the three minute break, but in that three minute break, while you're trying to drink water or eat a, Power bar, banana, whatever it may be. They're they're testing our blood lactate levels, and they're telling us if we have to go harder or ease up a little bit on the throttle. But those those thirty kilometer sessions were were very challenging at the end of a at the end of a long week.
0: What would have been your pace time on those?
1: So we'd be at we'd be rate capped at I think it was twenty strokes a minute. So rowing, I mean, like eighty percent of the training is at a low a low stroke rate. So yeah. twenty strokes a minute to allow yourself lots of time to recover on the slide as you go up to the catch. Um, I would say the team average, most guys were anywhere between one minute and 43 seconds per 500 up to one minute and 47 seconds per 500. So I'm, I'm not sure what the wattage was or even like the calories per hour, but yeah. the, we would always go by like, yeah, 500 meter split times.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. And no, um, that just sounds painful. Like what on oh. like, the videos you sent me there? Like, cause, um, on the one long video that you had, cause you had the three YouTube videos. So just for anyone listening, Rob sent me some like background training videos, right? Um, on the one long video, had all you guys on the rowers, you guys just at the end of it, it's just trying to get your feet on done. Like a I kind of know that feeling, but not anywhere to the extent of you guys would be doing, but you guys had the snarkles on cause you're doing your um, testing there and like, you just ripping it off. I think there was one great photo or maybe video of someone just giving the middle finger to the coach just cause they're so burnt <laughs> out at the end there. Right.
1: Yeah, that was, that was quite common. I mean, you know, especially when the intensity would go up in the training, like the rates would go up higher. Um, intensity would go up and then the lactate goes up with that and then the emotion the true emotions really would boil over sometimes i mean it wasn't uncommon to see you know grown men just like just absolutely just screaming at each other on the lake just for the slightest of issues yeah um you know quite common to see grown men cry like just break them down to their core just like i I saw it many, many times, guys just crying on the lake or in the gym. They just they something inside them just broke down. And you know, everyone everyone was riding a pretty fine line um just to just to stay on the team because it was so competitive. And I mean the pressure got to a lot of guys over over the years.
0: Oh, for sure. I think um that's completely normal. If you're not having those emotions come out, then there's something almost wrong with you, right?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I I kind of like. I always liked that if you were, if you were enjoying the training, like if you're really loving the training, then you're probably not training hard enough. Yeah. That was kind of the way I approached it. Some guys are probably different, but for me, that's how I like to attack every, every training session or every training week.
0: Yeah. Now, where did you like learn to build that grit? Cause like rowers are infamous for their grit levels. Like they can just go in the pain cave and Mm -hmm. just hold on. Like, is that part of training that everyone has learned or do the, Ones who have like a stronger grit level, like a higher grit level, like they, they're the ones that just get, don't get weeded out. They survive. Like we're
1: like yeah. I,
0: different for everyone.
1: Like where I mean, did you a, get your grit? A, a common saying, I mean, this isn't just in the wrong world. This is just across the board. I mean, it, hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. I mean, I, I saw some absolute specimens come through the training center. I'm talking like six foot seven, like 230 pounds chiseled men, with physiology, just genetic freaks. And they didn't have the most important aspect, which was just the work ethic or even just to manage the discomforts of the training or even on another level to manage that scale of putting down four years of your life to achieve, you know, one collective goal on one day. I mean, a lot of things have to go right to survive those four years to set yourself up to be, in the right event and the right crew with the right you know team and the boats and the weather and like there's a lot of things should go right the the better crews the best crews usually do win um with it being an outdoor sport there is a bit of luck in some regards in terms of you know wind and current and stuff like that um but no, back to your original point. Sorry, I got a sidetracked there. Oh, yeah, oh, I don't know where I got my grit from. Um, I don't know, maybe just teammates. As I was growing up, I saw the way some guys approach sports in high school and I wanted to mirror that. Uh, you know, my, my dad had me working at a very young age. He owned an auto wrecking yard in Kingston McAdoo's auto parts. And uh, he had me out there when I was 10 years old picking up steel all summer long. Like, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it.
0: Wow. Uh, um, yeah. looking back into some of your stories there, cause you had, um, what was that coach there? Mike Spracklin, Spracklin, am I saying it right?
1: Yeah. Mike Spracklin. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So he seems to have a pretty big resume of achievements oh.
1: there too. Yeah. I mean, he, yeah, he is, um, he's one of the best growing pro- pro- coaches ever.
0: So, just give a quick background of who he is, just for people listening.
1: Yeah, sure. He is. Um, so, he was the Canadian rowing coach um, in the early 1990s. Actually, he he came over to Canada from from Great Britain, and uh, he led the Canadian men's eight to a gold medal in Barcelona. He also coached Silken Wellman to a bronze medal. That I mean, I'm not sure if anyone's familiar or listening, but she had a a massive impact and race and performance in the 1992 Olympics in the women's single after nearly having her leg cut off in a, in a horrific accident, um, like six or seven weeks prior. Um, you know, Mike, Mike definitely put a stamp on the Canadian rowing scene in the early nineties. Then he went down to the U S and coached the U S team, um, leading into the 90, 96 Olympics. Then he went back over to Britain coached the women over there to the 2000 Olympics And then Canada rehired him, and then things really took off in the early 2000s. He creates this culture of excellence in in a manner that I've never seen any coach do since. I mean, he's a master psychologist in many ways. I don't think I ever saw him raise his voice. He's an old British man. I mean, I don't know how old he is. At the the time when he was coaching us, he he was in his 70s, mid-70s. Um, he just had a way with words and he created a program where anyone was welcome to join. Absolutely. Anybody could show up in the country. Um, and he, basically guys would just weed themselves out within days or even a week um, if they didn't have what it takes. So it was a very open, open training center, but it was one that very few could, could hang on to. Um, so anyways, it was very unfortunate. Um, even with our silver medal, um, Performance in the 2012 Olympics, rowing Canada, sport Canada, whatever the powers above above us, they they did not rehire him. And the sport of rowing, at least on the men's side, hasn't really been able to recover ever since. The women have just recently had, you know, monumental success. The women's eight won a gold medal and a bronze medal in Tokyo. It was a phenomenal performance by them. But the men, I mean the men's rowing, we, we haven't been able to recover that, uh, that former glory that we once had on the, on the international stage.
0: Now, well, cause with um, that Mike Spracklin there, so that's when you're doing a little less volume because you're doing 18 workouts. Yes. A week. And then when you got the new coach there, so that would have been 2012 and that's when you bumped it up to like up to 22 workouts a week, seven days on.
1: Yeah. It was, it was a stark contrast with Mike. It was very simple. It was just go as hard as you can every stroke every day that's basically end of story um and then you just kind of build up a tolerance to producing lactic acid and even like you're almost like sharpening your mental blade so to speak like you get very race savvy and race sharp um very very tough training because uh, you you never have a day off, you know, there's no reprieve from the from the competitive nature. Uh, you know, when the new coach came in, Martin McElroy, uh, an Irish coach, he had success with the 2000 British men's eight. He was their coach to a, he led them to a gold medal, completely opposite approach, um, more volume based training, so lower intensity you know, let's say with Mike, we would do an eighteen-kilometer row, but the intensity would be through the roof. With Martin, we would do a thirty-kilometer row, um, not even side by side. We would be by ourselves in the singles, or doubles, or pairs, or whatever it may be, just focusing on technique, rhythm, and aerobic capacity, opposed to Mike again with uh, anaerobic um, threshold stuff.
0: Yeah. So Mike sounds like a lot. Like, do you know much about the weightlifting, the different styles, and weight in the sport of
1: weightlifting? I've got a strong idea, but not nearly what you would have.
0: Yeah. So, so like, go back to – I forget the name of the – there's a famous Bulgarian coach. His name was, like, Ivan something, like, typical Bulgarian name. But he was the exact same thing where it's just – you basically maxed out every single day. come in there, <laughs> you're back squatting, you max out. You do your snatch and you're clean, you max out, max out. What <laughs> way, it's kind of – like – way it's kind of built is that when you go into your hitting your max, you're not trying to go to your absolute max every single day. Right. But he's right. like, you gotta go hit that heavy rep for the day. But he had them just doing that all the time. So these guys were just so, uh, battle ready. Just what like you said for competitions. Right. And so there was going to competitions. There always were basically in some ways peaking now back then they're, they're also known for a lot of, um, extra substances putting into your body. Yeah. But, um, but basically, it sounded kind of like the same type of style. Where it's like, it's not a lot of volume, but you just hit your heavy max. Maybe do a drop set, go down to like ninety percent, hit a couple singles, call it a day. <laughs> and yeah. it's funny because, like they say in North America, they could never adopted it because a lot of times when people see a max out, like hit a heavy set of three back squats, you're like, fuck, okay, I'm going to try and max out on this. Next week, another, another three, you got to go a little bit heavier. And guys always start super heavy, almost at their max, and then they have a hard time trying to break that. And right. to them, became such a mental toughness that like, it was hard to weed them out. So it just made yeah. me think of that when you were talking about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing that I think – doesn't get appreciated enough. It's the psychology of sport. I mean, it really is a mental game when you're on the start line of uh the big races or the big games or whatever it may be. I mean, there's a lot of psychology that goes into it. I think, I think personally, I think that's gonna be the next breakthrough. There's been a lot of breakthroughs in in um in training and sport across the board the last 10, 20 years. Uh Mike, Mike Spracklin, I mean, he was he's about as old school as it gets. I mean, the guy raced at, like the 1952 Commonwealth Games or something. I mean, he he was old school. Martin had the science approach. We made we made really large we made large gains um, in terms of our of our physiology, of our aerobic capacity under Martin, but we just weren't able to transfer it to um, race performance success on the day that counted. So, you know, I don't know, like pick your poison kind of thing. There's probably a fine balance of the two somewhere. Um, we just we didn't find it in Rio, unfortunately.
0: Well, and also, like, you guys only have about three competitions a year.
1: Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Which is, I know, it's, that's, it's bizarre. Like, you think about the training to competition ratio of, of the sport, and it's just, it's really off the charts. I don't know of many sports that, that are like that. I mean, like, we'd only get two weeks off a year in, you know, after the World Championships to spend time with our families or try to live a normal life, I suppose, for two weeks, and then it was right back to the grind so we'd start training you know at the end of september and we wouldn't really be racing at least internationally until june maybe so that's like the, the fall months were long the winter months were long even like the early spring months it just seemed like we would never like racing was still months away at times um so it's a battle like it's it was a real it's a real struggle and i i commend all the athletes that competed in tokyo because they I mean they had that additional year which yeah. What a what a hurdle that was. Um, I mean, I know a lot of a lot of rowers that uh retired when as soon as um the IOC announced that they were gonna postpone the Olympics. I mean, a lot of guys just said done. They just couldn't they couldn't do it a whole other year of it. So it's tough.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh for sure. Cause like we're not even going jump into like them trying to deal with all the COVID protocols, what was happening up there, like say the gym's being shut down, the country, or I know like with Olympic athletes, they're able to get some exemptions, but adding a full year onto a, a cycle, right? Like cause you guys are lo- like, okay, this is a year long cycle. We're ramping up to this one day or this one event. And then we gotta delay it, delay it, delay it, put on a whole year, like that's not yeah. really tough to cause you could even though you know there's like the end game's still there, but it's just adding that longer when it's not for sure there.
1: Yeah. I mean, and <laughs> on an even greater level, they didn't even know with certainty that it was going to go on. I mean, exactly the media, it seems every Olympic games, most often the summer games, because it's, it's, it's quite large. It's, I mean, it's four times as big as the winter games, but a lot the media focuses on what negative aspects of the upcoming games, you know, and in, in Athens in 2004, it was that the economy couldn't support it in Beijing. It was the Tibetan protests, in London, it was terrorist attack, in Rio, it was the Zika virus, and then Tokyo, obviously, was COVID, like, it seems like the media just goes all in on one negative worldwide phenomenon, or whatever it may be, and it, it creates a lot of anxiety for the rowers, because, I mean, there's always, every four years, there's these big murmurs and rumors of a protests or, um, you know, a boycott, and it, it's, it's tough, so with COVID, you know, what a, what an unknown that is, and, that was at the time for the athletes. They they were training weeks in advance, and there's increasing numbers in Tokyo, and the games are going to be pro or postponed or canceled, and there's always protests. So they they definitely had their work cut out for them in terms of managing the the emotions of that. Uh, it wasn't it wouldn't have been easy for anybody.
0: No, now during like say when you're at the the three different Olympics, there did you guys get a lot of help from your coaches? Them trying to like almost shield you guys from all this negative press and be like, don't worry about it. Yes. Focus on the task
1: at hand. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, we are, we're, we're coached through it. Uh, I mean, I think even, even in London, like it was, we all kind of agreed just to not touch any social media or even, even emails really just like, just don't even talk to family. Don't talk to anybody. Just focus on the team and the, uh, and the task at hand, because once you start reading the reports or the news media or whatever, the article is like, you just, You get distracted. You can get frustrated with it if it's untrue. I mean, I definitely had some some news media's quote me, but the quote wasn't my words. You know, they weren't my words. It can be frustrating. Uh, So yeah, no, we were we were coached through it, Um, and then yeah, I mean, it was it's also funny. Like it was, you know, I remember back in in Beijing, like Facebook was just coming around. I mean, even smartphones. I don't even. I don't think we had we had flip phones back then and they hardly even worked. I mean, we just, I remember I brought like disposable cameras with me to Beijing to take photos. Um, four years later, Facebook is all the rage and the smartphones are coming out the iPhone four. And then Rio it's like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, like the social media storm just grew each quadrennial. So I don't know what it was like in Tokyo for the athletes, but I imagine it was even, even greater. So that's crazy. Um, with the Olympics,
0: what would have been each one, like if there was an opportunity to take something away from a learning perspective, because like our big thing at the gym is, um, train for adversity, and when things go wrong, use that as opportunity, right. From each Olympics, was there like one key learning like lesson that you take away from each one?
1: Um, yeah. So what I really, what I witnessed with the Beijing guys, was um they weren't they weren't interested in the in the weeks even the months leading up to the olympics they were the gold medal favorites going into beijing they had no interest in any media scrums or reporters nothing i mean they didn't want to miss they didn't want to be distracted over over for anything and they weren't they, they didn't do media they just ignored it for the most part even though the kind of media lens in the country started looking looking their way they didn't they didn't care I think in Athens, four years prior, they had all this success. They were the reigning world champions for a couple for two years. They were undefeated for two or three years or something. And the media might have got them a little bit. So going to Beijing, I witnessed them just not caring about the media. They, all they cared about was winning the gold medal. Uh, in London, what did we learn in London? Um, we were. Only three had three or three guys had returned, I think, for the London Olympics. So we were a relatively young, immature crew. We, like I mentioned earlier, um, we we had a horrendous race. I mean, it was just a complete failure, and I think that boiled down to a lack of focus. Um, I mean, you you can try to imagine like the pressure that's on an Olympic start line for in any in any events. It, it's it's pretty immense. It's unlike anything you could ever really imagine or experience. You can't really properly prepare yourself for it. It's there's like dozens or felt like hundreds of cameras. And there's also a dead silence. It's it's kind of eerie. It's all these large men, you know, in this in that one event, there's eight, eight guys or nine guys in every boat, six boats, plus all the other people floating around. So a lot of people staring at you. It's a lot of a lot of testosterone, a lot of just a lot going on. So I don't think we had our focus going into that race. So we should have been better prepared um and then in rio um i mean what we didn't do well was we didn't we didn't react to our poor results um i don't know how we i, I was you know there's three of us in that boat that had been to olympics prior and we didn't do a good job of having conversations about how to find success after an initial failure we should have taken a more leadership role and and hashed out a better plan to make sure that the four of us were on the same page. I was in a four-man boat in the Olympics. I I regret not recognizing the severity of the situation we had put ourselves in and not, um, not reacting to it accordingly. So I don't know if that answers your question or not, but.
0: Oh, for sure. Like the way uh, I see it, it's like the first one there, you learn to focus on the things you can control. And then like from the last Olympics, there's just how to, Distract yourself and look at it from a macro view, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And lead after that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think we we really lost a lot of our confidence in in Rio after our first race, the heat, and we were fast. I mean, we were producing medals at World Cups at the World Cups uh, that that uh, that summer prior. We knew we had the speed to hit the podium, if not even win, but we just we lost our focus going into the our last chance race. So I I mean it's one of those things, you know, that's sport, that's that's life. You have good days and bad days. Yeah.
0: Well and everyone always focuses on the, the peaks, right? That's the peak peaks and valleys, right? And you spend more time in the valleys to get on top of that peak. So
1: absolutely. Yeah. But I can tell like the peaks are worth it though, aren't they? Like it's it feels pretty damn good when you get it right.
0: Oh yeah, especially <laughs> like when you're up there looking down on that view. Yeah. Now, when you're coaching right now what would be like, what is a like? I know because I know you're coaching Cole Carter and yeah, um, like, say, using him or the team that you're coaching right now, like, what is one big lesson that you're going to try and teach these young guys right off the bat to like to make it to the Olympics? Say, if like they come to you, like, hey, I want to be like you, Rob, I want to make it to the Olympics, like, yeah. what's one thing they're going to have to learn? To um, that?
1: that's that's a great question. I, Cole is such a great kid, I mean, he's. He has pushed himself. I mean, the guy, he starts a sport and then COVID hits and he's basically training by himself in his basement gym in a sport that he's kind of unfamiliar with. And it's, to top it off, it's not a very fun sport to train with, let alone by yourself in a basement. Um, But he... No,
0: like, cool quick, um, he got into that because he was playing hockey. This is Cole Carter um, because he was coming to the gym there, uh, the son of Steve Carter there. Um, he got into the rowing there cause he suffered a, uh, like a major concussion and hockey yeah. too, in football. Yes. So, yeah. I
1: so. think it was hockey. Yeah. 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 He, um, severe concussion. Right. And then, so rowing was the option. Rowing was the alternative for, for sport, non-contact. You know, I had a similar story actually just. And which, which helped me really relay my my journey to Cole is that I I also had a couple of concussions in football some minor concussions but it was enough to deter me away from contact sport to focus on rowing so I was able to explain my situation to Cole I think I think he kind of absorbed that and uh, yeah no Cole so Cole's just recently moved to Welland he's made the um, the Ontario provincial team he's training you know, part-time, but it probably feels like more like full-time for him right now. And then he's also just started new um, at a new high school out there. Uh, my message to Cole is I'm just trying to like, tell him to um, just take advantage of the opportunity that he has right now. Cause he has an opportunity this, this year that will, that could change the rest of his life for the better. It could lead to, it could lead to, you know, new things, new opportunities. I've always told him that just rowing just happens to be a sport that just, it opens up doors if you just if you're willing to put the work in to walk through that door, there's always another door that you can you can aspire to. And he's he's been walking through a lot of doors lately, and uh, there's many more down his down his path. Uh, with the kids here, bit of a different story, <laughs> only because it's a, it's a completely blank slate here. I mean, the sport of rowing doesn't exist in the Bahamas. Um, like uh, we're starting the first academy in the in the country right now, so. You know, there's there's a lot of growing pains ahead for me to try to get this thing up and running. Uh, luckily, I've got some solid support behind me in the community, and uh, the the I can see the puzzle pieces right now that they are in front of me, but I just got to start putting them together. And I'm just working on right now, just kind of building the trust with the with the kids, and uh, just kind of explaining the opportunities that they have in front of them as well. So at this age in high school i'd say the big thing is take advantage of your opportunities because there are there are many and they won't be there for forever
0: yeah well because looking at your rowing career because it got you to your current spot right now you're sitting down in the bahamas but you also you got to travel to quite a few countries because it looked like you're down in california italy you mentioned spain you yeah the olympics
1: so yeah no rowing showed me the world i You've been to like forty countries. Um, rowing is is a growing sport in in North America, but it's it's much bigger in Europe. It's much more. It's got a much solid, much more solid base there. Countries like France, you know, Great Britain, the Netherlands, Italy, Germany, um, even Australia, New Zealand are very strong, strong rowing nations. Um, so it's bigger in other parts of the world. So there were, there weren't too many competitions in North America while I was on the Canadian team. In fact, in fact, there was only one, and it was the 2015 Pan Am Games, uh, which was a lot of fun. Because um, that was in yeah, Toronto, right? It was in Toronto. So yeah, I got to we got to race on our I like to call it my home course of of Saint Catharines. Um, a lot of my racing in high school was done on that course, so it was a lot of fun. A lot of family, a lot of friends got to watch us race that uh, had never seen me race before just because, you know, it was yeah. just kind of, you know, it wasn't really an option whether, whether it's in New Zealand or wherever that we were racing yeah. with the Canadian team. So um, yeah, no rowing is definitely a global sports and uh, it definitely showed me a lot of the corners of the, of the world.
0: Now, one more thing I want to get into is um, I know we already talked about training. I just want to bring it back to that. What sure. would be what is like the worst workout you think you've ever done? Or if there's like, <laughs> like if you ever jump on the rower now and just do some casual, like I assume you probably don't jump on and try
1: and do a 2000 meter test. No, no, I don't, I don't ever want to do one ever again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the worst, the worst workout. I mean that, that right there could be it. Um, 2000 meter tests. They're, 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 terrifying for a lot. Like it's just such a painful, painful, you know, experience. I mean, it's well, like, that's
0: also your benchmark too. So you need to do it. Is. Uh, you can't, it's just not like another day of training. you just like, man, that was a tough workout. It's like, I have to perform on game day here.
1: Yeah, no, it's like, it's often like the first or second question. Of, if, if someone knows that you are a rower, a rower, you, you have rowed in the past, they ask you, what was your best 2k score? That is like one of the first questions that you will always get asked. It is, it is stamped onto you. Everyone knows what you've done. And, you have to you carry that around with you, and it it has a lot of weight too. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a big number. It's the Olympic distance, and it's one that uh, everyone can appreciate and and resonate with. So the two thousand meter test, we'd only do a couple a year, like three. And I mean, the nerves were <laughs> through the roof. I think I think because you knew you wanted to perform, you wanted to get a good score, but I think you also knew that it was going to hurt. You were going to have to suffer to get it. Uh, So that was – that was that's one. Another one is – I don't know. We used to do a lot of, like, 500-meter sprints with very short rest in between, like, competitive, um, like, side-by-side. Like, you know, 10 guys on the rowing machines. Everyone knows. Everyone's score. And you're basically competing to get into the eight that weekend. When I say 10 guys, there's probably, like, 15 or 20 guys. So that that was a tough one. Um, And then another one was just the 45-second test, just pure – max effort for 45 seconds uh that one would would burn a lot um, uh, that's
0: a long time too
1: yeah, yeah. so yeah so, i mean i don't know I could, there's there's quite a few of those tough workouts out right there but those ones come to mind off the top of my head
0: now can i ask you what it, what 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 it, what was your best 2000 meter time on the roar uh
1: it was it was 5:42, i believe yeah. yeah so that would that would have been um the world record is, is 537, I think. Um, only five, I think five men have ever gone under 540, like five humans ever. Yeah. So it's a pretty, like the 540 It's you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty extreme stuff. Um, we had a guy on our team do it, Colin McCabe from Brockville, just, you know, absolute, specimen, one of my best friends, um, six foot eight, two hundred and thirty pounds of just muscle. And uh yeah, he 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 lit one up one day, he crushed it. Um but yeah no I mean basically that this like the Olympic standard is kind of like sub six minutes. If you can go sub-six minutes, you're you're rolling pretty good. Like that is a good score. Like you are you got aerobic capacity, you've got, you've got strength and you've got some toughness, some mental fortitude in you. Um, and then from there, it just gets harder, as you know. Like anything, like,
0: like like knock off one second becomes a.
1: It's yeah, I mean, it becomes increasingly more challenging to knock off a half second, one second, whatever it may be. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was. There were there were big days, all of our test days. I mean, the, in rowing, it's the two thousand meter test, like it, like we're talking about, but it's also a six thousand meter test too. So yeah. two different tests, very different approach to each of them. Both suck like <laughs> they're both horrible experiences.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, because uh, I've done a two thousand meter a couple times and like, like I'm I don't need to do it ever again. I think I've only done it three times <laughs> in my life. I can't imagine doing three times a year. So.
1: so Yeah, yeah. Well, I I honestly hope I never have to do another one in my life. <laughs> no, for sure. I don't blame you.
0: <laughs> well, Rob, this was awesome. Thanks so much for jumping to this, man.
1: Uh, of course. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm glad we uh that we can make it happen
0: okay well i'd love, love to keep in contact so yeah i'll be reaching out to you soon so
1: yeah don't be shy um i'm actually gonna be home for a week in october i'd love to drop by for uh, for a workout maybe that's okay
0: yeah for sure we'll make sure there's no rowing that day so okay <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely stop by man you're always welcome
1: sounds good bob thanks uh thanks very much and do me a favor tell your brother i said hello and, yep. uh, yeah, I'll, uh, hope all is well. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Rob.